This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for November 2nd, 2021. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, where we talk about everything by talking about video games. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and as always, I am very glad you're here. Today I'm talking to Mike Grichy about the mechanical world of Dr. Gearbox. This ends up being a pretty wide-ranging conversation about, I mean, we do occasionally sound old, as I say, because we are slightly talking about kids these days and how their interactions are more digitally mediated than they were in our day when they were already pretty digitally mediated. But I think the really interesting thing about the conversation is that Mike is fully aware that he can't change that fact. He is not a Luddite in any way. He's more interested in steering those interactions and making sure that they are nutritious and that there is a variety of kinds of engagement in that diet, digital though it may be. This means we talk a fair bit about education, a fair bit about games, a fair bit about educational games, and a decent bit about politics, both capital and lowercase p. I hope you find it interesting. I think you'll find it fairly self-explanatory, so rather than giving you a bunch more notes, I will get us right to it. Enjoy. And we're live. So yeah, thank you one more time. I think we will start... Well, I say one more time. I'll probably thank you more times. But anyway, let's, let's start somewhere simple, and we'll get more complicated from there. First things first... What is the mechanical world of Dr. Gearbox? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I love when that's a hard one, if I'm honest, because yeah, it, it means you're doing on, something interesting. Yeah, It depends on who we're, who's asking and who we're talking to, I guess. So I think at its core, uh, if I'm talking to parents, I would tell them, or teachers, I would tell them that the mechanical world of Dr. Gearbox is a remote learning tool um, that will allow you as a parent or teacher to be, to be an administrator and to, if you want to, you can enter your own school curriculum into it and that will be surfaced to your kids while they play the game. Um, if I'm talking to a kid, I'm going to tell them this is just a killer video game. <laughs> yeah, this kind of goes into the, not the slogan, but a, a, a slogan or a phrase you've used, which is, which is the game allows you to play your homework, mm-hmm. right? Which is, which is, I guess, to dive right into it. One approach to solving what is, I believe, in educational games called the chocolate-covered broccoli problem. Right, right. Uh, do you want to go into that a little bit and like how this game addresses what that thing is? I can refer people to previous episodes of people who either are working or have worked in educational games for the basics right. of what that means. But basically, like putting something nutritious in something genuinely fun. Like, how does this game approach that not insignificant challenge? Right. So, so I think our our hope is. Uh, that we're not chocolate covered broccoli. So we're just trying to be chocolate and Mm. we're trying to get kids, you know, we're not trying to tuck education into a gaming experience. We're trying to get kids comfortable with the fact that they're learning while they're playing the game. And the, the goal for the team is that's just as fun as playing Roblox or as playing Minecraft or even Gasp as playing Fortnite, uh, which probably, you know, (laughs) I don't think at some point we're being ridiculous. But uh, yeah, that is that was our approach. Uh, ironically, the you know the people that I founded or started this thing with, we're not we weren't game designers. We were parents who who found you know an issue with our kids and what they were being assigned from school. And 
that's really how it began. So we didn't have uh, a teacher's mentality necessarily. We brought teachers in to provide us with what we call teacher-authored standards-based educational content. So if you want to rely on our stuff, it is coming from teachers. Uh, and, you know, at this point, three plus years in, we've learned enough about education through our teachers. And we all have kids in, in these school systems ourselves. Uh, but, yeah, that was the plan. As gamers, which is really what we are, that was the point. The point was, let's just make a really, really fun game that is inspired by the games that our kids really like to play. And, you know, we just compared that against the games that our kids were being assigned from school. And, you know, I, I give props to, to the people that made those games. I feel like they're trailblazers in the space. But at the end of the day, if you were to compare one of those games to like anything that my kids would rather play, my kids would, would hands down, they would just play Roblox or, or whatever it is rather than <laughs> sure. play that school game. Yeah, no, it's it's not even that something like uh, Minecraft, for example, is wholly unnutritious. There is a nutritious aspect to it, but yeah, and there's a whole educational version of it, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And uh, we know when I refer to people who've worked in the educational game space before, one example would be Zach Barth, uh, who has the whole Zacademics initiative now that gives free mm -hmm. game, free uh, copies of their uh, puzzle games to schools, and all of that. But this is something different than that, right? Because none of those, you know, Minecraft doesn't have your homework in it. So could you maybe go through? Because you know, I, I think the version that I got to play has a bit of this but I get the sense that there's more to it. How exactly does the curriculum get worked into the, the sort of core gameplay of the thing? Yeah, so the version that we gave you isn't far behind the version that we're about to launch uh, this Friday on Steam as part of NextFest. So that's that's all contained within basically within our what we call our demo build. And the way that the information works now is separate from the game, there's, an act, there's a, web, a website you can go to. So right now, the way that we deliver content in the game is solely at this time through different types of questions that appear during turn-based combat. And we, we call that as battle trivia. So we have an engine that we put together that we could lock it to anything. In other words, I can put like a loot crate in the open world and instead of it being locked and you needing a key, it would just start asking you questions and you would have to start answering them. Uh, to, to be able to open it up. So we can really put it at anywhere we want. Right now, we just have it within the turn-based combat engine. And the way that we put information in there is we have a website that we go to. We call it the administrative dashboard. It serves two major functions. You can input content into it, and you can also track user progress within the game via like the graphical interface. So the idea is that right now, we have a few different question types. We, you know, We have to start somewhere. So we have multiple choice and true false is kind of a subset of that. And then we have uh, ordering, which is I'll give you a list of things and you have to drag and drop them in the right order. And we have picture labeling. So I could show you a picture. And for example, there could be a dog, a cat and a zebra, and there will be an icon on the zebra. And the question will ask you, where's the icon? Like what picture is the icon on? And the, the answers would be dog, cat and zebra. And then you would just pick the one where you think it is. So we give that to the parents and the teachers, basically the administrators, anybody who is going to pay, pay for a subscription to the game, they have access to that and they'll have the same tools we have as developers to put their own kids' content into the game. So the big, the big disconnect that we're trying to solve for is when our kids are being assigned video game homework from school, it is sometimes it misses the mark and it's very vague and it's very, uh, it's kind of like math, right? I'm using air quotes right now. And it's not specifically the math that my kid is learning in his third grade class in his school. So 
you know, when I sat down with my kids, I'm like, number one, this game doesn't seem super fun. And number two, you have to kind of relearn math just to play this game and do it over here. And it's not helping you on a test in class. And if you're familiar with the public school system, especially here in the U.S., it's super duper test based. So part of this thing is like, let's just help kids pass tests by surfacing their own schoolwork to them while they're in turn based combat. So when you cast a spell, the game will start asking you questions. The more you get right, the stronger your spell will be and the cooler the loot will be. The loot tables are all derived and determined by how you're answering the questions. So to put that in back in the hands of a parent, I think that's pretty powerful because you don't have to rely on my teacher. My teacher's in Virginia Beach. We're using the Virginia Beach standards for all of our questions. And that's only really going to be super applicable if you live in Virginia Beach. If you live in like South Africa, right, or like, you know, nowhere near the U.S., or even different states in the U.S., that's not going to help you. So the first thought we had was we have to put this tool in the hands of the parents. And that and that's all available right now. That all works. And within that, like I said, is, is the tracking dashboard. So as you're playing the game and you're answering the questions and you're getting them right or wrong, as an administrator, you can see from a super duper high level of like, my kid has a 75 in science and a 85 in math. You can keep drilling down. And within science, there's maybe astronomy or physics or earth science. And you can keep drilling down. I think there's seven levels of, you know, it goes from the very top all the way down to the question itself. So if you see your kids struggling in a topic, you can drill all the way down to the very questions. And then you can see a, a kind of a time graph. Oh, they used to get this question wrong, but now they're getting it right. Or, oh, they get the, you know, suddenly they're getting this question wrong. Why, why are they suddenly not understanding this type of stuff? Um, so, you know, that's, that, that's the idea is that as a parent, you can see how your kid's doing. As a teacher, you can see how your class is doing. As a principal, you can compare classes. As a district superintendent, you could compare whole schools. Uh, and, and that's how we're doing this. So we're doing it. So basically on your iPhone, or your iPad or whatever, your mobile device of choice, you could keep track of the kids as they're playing in real time. And you can create new questions or, or pick existing questions and push it to them in real time, which we think is pretty awesome for like, you know, esports tournaments, for example, it can kind of be like a, uh, almost like a quiz bowl type of atmosphere where kids are going head to head with their teacher, assigning them questions as they go. It gives us the ability to do kind of raid bosses where the teacher is the raid boss and the kids are all casting spells. And if they get the questions right, their spells will connect. So there's all sorts of stuff that the, you know, the engine allows us to do. We just have to go out and do it. I love, by the way, I mean, that there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, but just right off the cuff, the thing about raid bosses, the, you know, the, the idea of turn-based battles, you're taking advantage of the fact that kids like to compete which they do get to do in school normally, but maybe not in the most fun or interesting way. But the raid boss idea also takes advantage of the fact that kids like to cooperate, which I feel like school, particularly in the U.S., does an extremely bad job of fostering. So That's it's, right. yeah, no, it, it locks into a whole different part of like developing minds that, that I think is really healthy to lock into. Yeah, when we were talking about how that would work, the idea was going to be that the teacher would be the raid boss and each kid, basically the idea was there's a bunch of kids in the class and depend like, there'd be almost like a leaderboard and the kids that answer questions right would be higher on the board. And then we were starting to think like, you know, we could split this out into different game modes, but yeah, we could do it like that. But we could basically put the rules in the hands of the teacher to say, instead of each kid kind of being on their own and being scored as an individual, you could make it so the class has to agree on an answer and then everybody's either right or wrong. So the class at that point would have to cooperate and as a team, you know, agree on what it is that they're going to, respond with. So there's different ways we can do it. And it, it does, it promotes, uh, you know, 
being an individual it pr- promotes working as a team. Uh, and you know, it kind of, depending on the kid, I can tell you right now, like my kids, they would just want to play video games, man. They wake up, they go to bed. That's what they want to do all day long. Like their dad, right? Like the apple doesn't sure. fall super far around here. Um, and if that's the case, to me, this is a way to really keep certain kids engaged. Yeah. What? It, so, so the other thing about the approach that I find especially fascinating is the problem it, it doesn't solve is the problem that probably, frankly, no video game can solve, which is like if the curriculum is, you know, is lacking in some way, then the curriculum will be lacking in some way in the game as well as outside of it. Right. And that's probably something you can't take on. What it does solve is the idea of it avoids that frustration where if you're doing something extracurricular that is teaching you math, but to you, but it's not the math on the test to the point you were making, then you get you feel like, hey, I'm learning math and it's profiting me nothing, right? This ties directly the thing that kids are being evaluated on with the process of learning with something that they find fun, right? So it like closes that gap. Is that yeah. is it fair to say that's the idea? Yeah, I mean, that's the disconnect that that we're looking to solve there. And to your point, if the material itself is the issue, then it's, you know, I have a phrase that you probably heard it before. It's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. So yes. classic, classic stuff, IT guy phrase. For yeah, sure. right. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big dad. We're all data guys here as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, if if it's the material, then it's the material. And there's not our game is just going to, you know, provide, uh, you know, present the material and surface it in a new way. So. It, it all comes down to what the teacher wants the kids to experience and what the teacher or even the homeschool parent or the regular parent, what they want their kids to be exposed to. And, you know, it's pretty interesting because depending on who we, uh, you know, we're talking to and what, what the situation is, ultimately, it doesn't have to necessarily solely be about your schoolwork. Like you and I could play it against each other and we could throw in there Star Wars trivia or like gaming history trivia. Uh, you know, sure. Anything, anything you were cramming for, you could in principle. Yeah, it doesn't really make a difference. Like, you know, the big joke was adults could make drinking games out of it. And you can have like, you know, if everybody went to college together 25 years ago, you could have your inside jokes in there. It really doesn't make a difference. Sure. It, it allows you to put in there whatever you want as long as you stick within the formats that we have. Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, as a practical matter in the professional world, adults have to take professional certifications all the time that are very much yeah. like those sorts of, you know, standardized or semi-standardized tests. So, you know, many a team has turned that into a drinking game. A, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I came from finance. I had my Series 7, my 63, and my 79. And those were all like cramming in your car because your kids are awake in the house type of tests. And uh you know, there was no, obviously there was nothing, there was no way to gamify it when I took those tests 15 years ago, or at least if there was, I didn't have a, if, if, if this existed, I would have went to the trouble of loading my stuff in there and I would have really done well. And I, I did well, but I would have done really well because it, it, I would have been, you know, having fun while I was learning and scoring all awesome loot. And that's kind of the thing, right? You're like chasing this loot down in the game. The, you're incentivized to get your questions right and know this stuff. That's yeah. So I want to come back to your past in finance. I don't. I don't mean to say that like it's like it's a dark secret. You, it's, <laughs> it's it's neither. You know. It, well, whether it's dark is up to you, but it's not a secret. What I want to say first, though, is you know when you talk about like delivering it via a new mechanism, you mentioned the example you know of the turn-based battles. You mentioned raids. You mentioned the possibility of locking a loot box using a math problem or right. something like that. Is is it fair to say that like the idea is to um, I guess <laughs> to use. To use some older educational games just as touch points, not to say you're aping or for that matter, reacting against either precisely, but, you know, thinking about Mario is missing, right? Which is like just a game where you wander around and there is geography trivia and it's basically separate from the then hopping on stuff like Mario. And the two things, you know, maybe you're both fun, but have nothing to do with each other versus Mario teaches typing, which 
although it completely fails to teach you to type correctly, does teach you to type faster, right? <laughs> the idea here is more like the latter in the sense that you are tying the curriculum directly, not just to a game because kids like games, but to the specific parts of games that kids find compelling, right? The actual yeah. competition, cooperation, loot, whatever. Yeah, and I think we took our inspiration across the board from, you know, we're, we're, I don't think we're the first to do that. So, you know, other others have done it but the thing is they to me they missed an opportunity to make it palatable to a kid so <laughs> what we did was we took our inspiration from them we took our inspiration from like what a kids love well kids love my kids love pokemon they like to cr collect critters right so like we and then we looked across the board what kind of graphics do kids like and, and that one thing i'm pretty big on is nobody really put together a kids game with the inspiration of like not the gameplay or story, obviously, but just the setting of something like Red Dead Redemption. Like we're look, we're never going to get there as an indie studio. Right? We don't have hundreds of millions of dollars as a budget. But that's the type of thing that I was looking at early on when I said, let's make this thing look as realistic as we can and put some fantastic kind of crazy characters within it. But our trees should look like a real world tree would look because that's what gaming engines can do right now. So we, you know, we looked at the existing games that were for kids. And what I like to basically say is, generally speaking, it looks like they were made in Flash like 15 years ago. So <laughs> everything's kind of two-dimensional. And it's an, I say the word color forms, and my kids don't even know what that means. But uh, to me, it, it's, it's kind of uh, an art style that I wanted to, in that case, like I did want to rebel against that. I wanted our game to be 3D. I wanted our game to have particle effects that were pretty crazy. And you know, because I think when you're a kid, you kind of look upwards at what you're not allowed to play yet. Oh, so, sure. you know, yeah. my younger kid's looking up, he's playing Roblox, he's looking up at my older kid who's playing Fortnite, and my, we don't let my eight-year-old and my nine-year-old play Fortnite yet. My my soon-to-be 14-year-old, he, he plays Fort and he plays Valorant and those types of games, and he's looking up at, like, Grand Theft Auto. And he's like, well, my friends are playing Grand Theft Auto. I'm like, yeah, well, you're not playing Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> my five-year-old so, nephew is is notionally obsessed with Dark Souls. And we'll talk about yeah. his his, his uh, imagined time with Dark Souls 10 or whatever. <laughs> because, you know, and partly, you know, it's the dad plays it and, and maybe even that it's spooky or whatever. But partly to your point, it's just the spectacle. It's this thing that he doesn't have access to or access yeah. to an equivalent. And of. he knows what it looks like. Totally, and, totally. And I think that was, that was part of the drive for us. It was like, you know what? My kids and other kids their age they know what a really good looking game looks like. Cause at this point it pretty much is indistinguishable from a good movie or at least the very least an animated movie. And you know, I'm looking at my kids and like, what do they love? They love star Wars movies. They love Marvel movies. Of course, like the MCU is just redefined, you know, the, the adventure moving going experience. And that's who we're trying to appeal to. We're trying to appeal to people that are used to that stuff and have graduated to that stuff or see that stuff and want to be a part of it. That's, the direction that I had given the team early on. It's like, look, we need to have a killer campaign in here. We have to have a, an amazing story where like, sometimes there's bad news to deliver and sometimes things are sad. We want some adult kind of topics in there. I, you know, Dr. Gearbox, we have, you know, we've given him the onset of Alzheimer's disease as, and you know, the function of the game is to kind of retrace his steps throughout the places he's been in his life and, uh, you know, kind of explore and figure things out that he, he no longer can remember. Because a lot of us have had that experience in real life with our grandparents. And, and we're trying to work some serious stuff into here and be something where, you know, I think a lot of people missed as a good example, 
people will look back and be like, man, Mist was just like amazing. And I played that game 30 years ago or whatever it is. And I would still rate it super duper high because the feeling that I got when I played it. And that's what we are trying to go for. We're trying to make this thing. Uh, I always use the example of the Transformers animated movie when they like, they killed Optimus Prime. Spoilers. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Um, but like, I think the statute of limitations is probably up on that particular. Yeah, story, right. But yeah. So like, you know, they killed your hero in the first half hour. It actually was re-released for a couple of days in the movies. And I brought my my nine year old to see it over the weekend. And uh, he's already seen it. But like that was the movie going experience when you were a kid. And like to this day, it was the, the most one of the most impactful days of my life mm. was when I when I went there and saw that. And that's what I told the team. I'm like, we need to bury that kind of stuff into this game. So when people think about this in the future, they're like, dude, nobody's going to look back at it, hopefully, and say, yeah, there was an e-learning game. It helped me study. Like, we want people to look back at it and say, dude, I made so many friends when I played that game. Or like, I remember crying my eyes out when I played that game. Or like, I couldn't, you know, I played that game and I felt like I could like take on the world afterwards. So, you know, we have a long way to go for stuff like that. The game is pretty much what you've seen so far, right? So like, Mm -hmm. we don't, you know, we're not under the illusion that all of that's in there right now. But, you know, like I said before, you got to start somewhere. No, for sure. I am a firm believer that kids can handle heavy subject matter. Obviously, you have to be, it's, it's all in how you do it and all of that. But the example of an older relative or just someone old in the neighborhood, you know, having, you know, a, a mental mental capacity issues or, or, or something like that, it's extremely relatable to kids. And it's it's deeply sad and it can be really confusing and scary. But it's like you say, it's a really common experience. And it's a thing that it's important to have some kind of language to talk about. I think. So that's, yeah. I, I love the idea of it not shying away from that stuff. And it's also like the idea of juxtaposing that stuff or, or making it inseparable from school makes a certain kind of intuitive sense to me too. I mean, not for nothing does every shonen anime just about, you know, include the parts about being a student too, right? The idea right. that <laughs> there are these emotionally intense highs and lows and they're kind of inseparable from like hanging out with your classmates and cramming on homework and whatever. Like that, that is, that is the emotional register of being a kid in a, in a very yeah, real sense. Right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is, you know, and things are, especially after COVID things are turned on their heads right now. So when I was a kid, you know, I, you know, I'm in my forties right now. So I was in high school in the 90s, like Wu-Tang, you know, Wu-Tang came out when I was a junior in high school and I'm from Staten Island to give you an idea of like where, where oh, we that, were at that time. must've been seismic on. in a certain sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and when I think about those times, it was like, we, when you're studying with your friends, your parents were dropping you off at somebody's house and you were all sitting around the kitchen table with books and the universe is just different now. So not to say that those things don't happen, but we wanted to create a plate, like a safe place where you could study with your friends. And, you know, the idea of come home from school, do your homework, get all your stuff done, and then you can play video games. I'm like, what if we blur the lines? What if you can come home from school and play your video game? And that is studying. So... Yeah. Well, on a related note, you've you've talked elsewhere uh, about how when I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, I'm I'm in my mid 30s. I'm like about to be 35. Um, but but I too remember studying with friends and also something again that you've talked about elsewhere, which is that you know gaming with friends was inherently social. It was about being in the same room. Right. Um. Not not because we chose it because we were more virtuous, but because that was the only option. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, even past the time where networked games exist existed, we were just sort of in the habit. So there would still be LAN parties, or there would be like you'd bring you know the GameCube had a had a freaking handle on it, right? For exactly <laughs> this reason. 
So I, I think, you know, don't let me mischaracterize you here, but I think you've said elsewhere that you were thinking a little bit about not just the quantity of screen time that your kids were getting, but the sort of the quality of it and in what way it was or wasn't social. A hundred percent. I mean, we, you know, we started this in August of 2018. This was before COVID and before screen time rose even more. But like, you know, to your point, when I was a kid, Screen time was after school, we would sit down, we'd watch like Transformers at three o'clock, G.I. Joe at 3.30. We'd play Nintendo in, in 1986 uh, and it, you were on your couch and the controller was connected to a cord to your, and that was it. And then we'd go outside and play like tackle football in the street uh, and like the concrete street. And like, that was, that was really day. important. You would get, you would like finish the game or get bored or whatever. And then you would just like, yeah, you know, like shoot hoops badly or whatever. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Right. But we were out there doing it. My big thing was roller hockey. So I was playing roller hockey. Like I felt like gaming was my favorite of all things, but I did a whole lot of stuff, including gaming. Uh, And, you know, my, you know, my nine-year-old doesn't know a world where a smartphone doesn't exist. He doesn't Mm -hmm. know a world where, you know, and you think about how games have progressed. You could be playing a game on your console. And like, this is one of my favorite features now. And then you can get up and get a portable device and keep playing the same save game in your car. Uh, and it's like you go to the airport and you're on a plane. There's, it, there's no end to the amount of you know exposure you can get. And that's what was happening. Like I would, you know, my kids would play the games and then we'd go to a restaurant and you'd see every parent in the place just give their kid a phone because they want to digest their meal. And then you, you know, you probably heard me say, then you jump on a highway and you look at the car next to you and every kid in the car, nobody's even looking at each other anymore. They're all just heads are down. They're playing their games. <laughs> and you get to the uh, restaurants and, you know, every, every kid is heads yeah. down playing the game at the it's table. It's just like, and, and it, yeah, it yeah. became a, instead of a balanced thing where you were doing other stuff too, it became the only thing. And, you know, you, you probably heard me say, I'm not going to sit here and try to fight that. Like, you know, I listened to Elon Musk talk to Joe Rogan and Elon Musk is, he kind of hit it on the head when he said, we're almost like cyborgs already. The only difference is, he's like, you, we now have a device on us at all times that can take picture perfect memories. It has hard drive space so we can remember things better than our own fidelity can remember and a lot more than we could possibly remember. It, it's a compass. It's like a GPS. It does all these different things. He goes, you're, we're basically augmented and the only thing that, makes us non-cyborg is it's not actually connected to us yet. Totally. And yeah. I would actually push I, that argument further and say that when, you know, when guys like Musk talk about pushing toward strong AI or the singularity, they're sort of missing the point that the singularity has happened. Like the interface will get slicker, but right. you already, you know, you use, you, you, you're driving your car, but you're getting directions from a machine. Like machine intelligence yeah. does augment yeah. human intelligence. We're there. This is what it looks like. It's clunkier yeah, than I mean, we were I promised. You, but my we're mom's there. phone number. You know? Yeah, no, totally. Know totally. Phone <laughs> my phone knows my mother's phone number. And exactly. That's how I, I just press mom and it dials my mom. And, uh, you know, I looked at all this and I said, there's no possible way that we're going backwards from this. We're only going to hurdle further towards this. So if that's the case, it comes back to what you said before. If this is going to be happening, then let's get the most out of it as far as our kids go. Totally. And that means totally. if you're going to be staring at this thing for crazy hours, then you should be getting something more than just entertainment and socialization out of it. And that's why we started baking in these ideas of let's make an education game that's super fun, or even let's make the subscription model take care of some charities. So, you know, when the game flips, it's, it's going to be a free demo on Steam, but when it flips to a subscription, you know, as any other subscription, like a Netflix subscription, it'll ask you, who are you and what's your credit card information? But ours is also going to ask you, which one of these charities do you want a portion of your subscription to go to? And that's non-negotiable. So that means you've got to pick a charity 
Because as a parent, we want you to feel like your money's more well spent than just going towards, you know, whatever the digital currency is of the game that your kid's playing because they want to look cool with the newest, you know, whatever that came out in the game. Sure. So the idea that when I spend money on this game, it's it's I'm really spending it on my kids' education and a portion of it is going to a charity that I got to select, not just some charity that they told me this money's going towards, but there was a list there and I got to pick one on there. I think that positions a parent to feel better about the screen time as well. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make make sense about the world that is on us. Like nobody really picked all this. We're, we've just been given this and there's no way out of it. So if that's going to be the case, let's ma- let's make some good out of it. Yeah. No, I, I love the idea of the, the charity thing being non-optional. It's a bit like Humble, like the Humble store, the Humble right. bundles. Right? It's not like Amazon right. Smile where you opt in and then you forget and you cancel the order and you reorder and they don't care because you're just more engaged with Amazon or whatever. Right. It's this, some portion of this is going to a charity. So that encourages you to think about which charity and that already just like that. I, I feel like I don't have any data behind this, but I feel like that makes you more engaged in the process in addition yeah, to drawing your attention. Yeah, it raises awareness for the charities. And, we, you know, we, we started reaching out. And we, you know, the first one we reached out was to Child's Play. And, you know, to, to summarize, they put video game consoles in hospitals. And then we reached out to Extra Life. They basically do kind of video game versions of walkathons where you pay somebody by like the hour they play a game. And then we reached out to Special Effects. And like, you know, if straight up, if you're born without arms, they'll come to your house and have you play Minecraft with your breath. So, you know, we, we found all these video game charities and we just reached out to them and we're like, hey, whether you know it or not, or like us or not, we're looking, our function in the universe is to try to make you money. So, you know, they were all super, like super duper supportive of us. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have their stuff in our game. So when you create your character, you could choose an Extra Life t-shirt or a Child's Play t-shirt or a Magic Wheelchair t-shirt. Um, and in the game, you'll be able to see what their website is and you can hit a hotkey and it'll open up their web browser. So if you're like, oh, who is Special Effect? What do they do? This is a way to get their name out there as well. They're doing fine. But the, you know, if our game takes off, that would be amazing, right? Everybody would just be exposed to all these different charities. And that, to me, that, that's, like, that's what people should be looking to do with themselves. Yeah, and we we should say we'll talk about the character creator in a second. But I, I think you've talked before specifically about Magic Wheelchair, which is extremely well suited for having like real world stuff have in game equivalents. For anybody who doesn't know, they they make these incredibly cool ass wheelchairs for kids yeah. who use wheelchairs. And I mean, like that, I can't think of anything better suited for you to have one like in the real world than in the game. Just as yeah, an example, we, we called it, them and we were like, uh, you know, I was speaking Christine over there. Was absolutely, what an amazing person! And I'm like. Dude, we could like pick one of the wheelchairs that you really made. We can build that and put it in this game. Like we can there's that's the thing about these games. There's really it's not the overhead that you would think, you know? To do something like that, like to in, to be transparent is like a few thousand dollars. So it's like that that's an impactful thing like to to be able to model put real world things like the schoolhouse that's in our first level of Kerhonkson. That schoolhouse was like on when I was a kid, we had a we had a place in the, in the Catskill Mountains, and it was in Kerhonkson. And that schoolhouse was out front of my the trailer we lived in. Hmm. And like, it just goes to show you how picture perfect you can make. And that's why when we, you know, when we did stuff like the character creator, we called people and we were like, show us what, what's real. And we're going to go make that in the game. And, you know, the wheelchair is a perfect example. Like, Matt, we want to take something, because they're, to your point, those are all bespoke one of a kind wheelchairs that they make these kids. And uh, my big question to them is always like, what do they do with that? Thing? Some of them are gigantic. They're like the size of cars. And I'm like, what are these people? And they're like, oh, well, it doubles as like a wall 
uh, decoration. So they could actually like pull it apart and put it up on the wall or something. That's so incredibly cool. Yeah, because like the yeah. uh, this is for like a kid in a wheelchair wants to cosplay as a, as a dragon or something. Like, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this stuff, like one of them was like, you know, a TIE fighter. One of them was like the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. And it's, you know, the the just the, the raw talent that that team has. And it's such a, what an amazing cause. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah, I don't, and, and you know, when you, when you talk about um, kids with, you know, without without certain limbs or whatever, use of their limbs, uh, I'll point folks to the Greg Haynes episode. We had, we talked to Greg Haynes from Able Gamers. Um, I don't know if you've worked, I forget if we, when we were talking before the interview, if you've worked with them specifically yet, but they're they're great yeah. as well and very, they're, okay, They're cool. on the list of people awesome. we need to talk. I've reached out to Steven Spawn, which is probably trying to reach out to like, you know, Brad Pitt. So <laughs> I've had trouble getting a hold of Steven, but I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll get them on board over time. They do so much and they're super busy, but they are really, really cool people and they're you know it's it's the, the whole thing is so everyone can game right and so everyone can play right um but yeah no i i we should say the the sort of nod to accessibility in particular in the character creator goes beyond you know t-shirts with good causes on them there's a fairly robust suite of prostheses for example um which right. which is not like totally unique among character creators the bedrock version of minecraft for example has some of that stuff although some of it is promotional it's like uh it's like hiccup hiccups prosthetic from how to train a dragon things like that right um, but, but this, I, I think if you want to talk a little about it, I, I think you've said that this was a priority, right. To, to make number one, a better <laughs> character editor. That's, that's something that, you know, the AAA, for lack of a better term games, maybe we're calling them blockbuster games now, and maybe that's better, but the, the big budget games tend to have that educational games tend to not be very strong on. Yeah. And I that mean, as you were making a better one, you wanted to specifically help kids see themselves and see each other differently. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, everything you just said, it was, you know, to, to your point. It wasn't just something that we wanted to put on the roadmap and tell people we were going to do. So we led with that. That was one of the first things we ever built. So so nobody could say, you're not serious. Like, again, just to be transparent, that thing costs real money, right? That was thousands and thousands of dollars to put that thing together. Totally. And, totally. you know, we, we sat down and we were like, before we had levels or anything, we we're like, we want to make it. So th there's an awesome character creator in there because nobody's doing that for kids. And again, they look upstream and they see you know, I could play these games and these AAA games have really robust character creators. So we started out and the general theme that we learned along the way is that the disabled community uh, kind of feels isolated in everyday life. So they turn to video games. And then when you look at video games, the disabled community is very rarely represented. And, and then if you start looking at stats, there's like some insane stat, like 25% of the global population is, is considered disabled in some way. Like uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD from 9-11, which is, it basically just means I'm, I'm very scared of heights and I do not like skyscrapers. Um, so, you know, on the list of disabilities, I'll take that one as, as opposed to the other ones that are out there. But once that started happening and I started to like feel the effects of that, my eyes started to become open to like what a wheelchair parking spot by the, the closest spot to a restaurant is it in the past i would look at that and be like oh somebody you know who's in a wheelchair or or you know has accessibility issues is going to need that spot and now when i look at it my my brain's like oh what it really takes for somebody who's in a wheelchair to pack that thing up and put it in a wheelchair accessible vehicle and drive themselves there and then put a ramp down and then get into the chair and roll like there's a lot that goes into that and you, you notice every curb once, you, yeah. you know, even yeah, just like how to break buildings I couldn't get into. I was going to different, you know, I, like you said, I worked in finance and I was going to meetings and I would get there and they would have like a 40 story glass elevator. And I'd be like, I'm not going in that. Uh, and that was like a life changing moment for me because my body wouldn't do it. 
And mm. I started to realize like, oh, that building's not built for people like me. And most buildings aren't built for a lot of people with disabilities. And that's when I, it all started to click. Totally, like, totally. The gaming industry probably needs to catch up with accessibility. I think where we're lacking as a company, because you know we're, we're a small indie team, we can only do so much at the same time. Our accessibility controls aren't even in there yet. And that like we're so embarrassed about. Basically, we're accessibility is so important to us, and we're, we're, we know we need to get on that, and, and we definitely will. Um, but as far as the character creator goes, we were like, find me a game with a wheelchair, and we searched and searched and searched. And I know there's some games with wheelchairs in them, uh, but we couldn't find one in in August of 2018 where you could straight up choose to be in a wheelchair, and it will do everything. And then we learned the hard way why, and it was like, what do you do with a wheelchair when it goes in water, right? And we're like, oh, we need like an animation that transforms the wheels and puts them horizontal and makes turns it into a hovercraft. That costs more money, right? And now we need somebody who specializes in this type of stuff. So, oh, we want a prosthetic limbs. That's like to get that right, which it, I think we'll be the first to tell you there's clipping issues, which I think is normal. We're, we're still in the demo stage, but you know, there's a lot, that, a lot of extras go into putting all that kind of functionality in there. And that's probably why certain people would shy away from it for sure. Uh, but, you know, it's like you, if, if you want to do something important, that's what you have to do. And this to us, our, our biggest dream would be that our small indie studio kind of raised awareness to if we could do it, then the bigger studios could be doing it, too. And hopefully we see a lot more than this because it's it, it, it there's a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion and sometimes I feel like people just want to share a Facebook post and that's the end of their in, in interaction with it. And, uh, <laughs> and you in know, fact, they're, they're a little bit like taken aback if you, if, you know, if they say, I plan to do better. And then you, you say, cool, here's how you can do better. Yeah, like, you're right. right, mean right. It. Like, just, all right. Yeah. Well, we did better. In this case, we did better. And, I, you know, we should, we could be proud of certain things. I, I tell the team that all the time. Like, you should talk about that because that's a, that's really, really cool what we, what we did. And we should be, we should be proud of that. And our biggest wish is that, it becomes normal and nobody cares that we did it because everybody does it. Totally. Totally. No, absolutely. You want it to, to almost like to, for, for people to have to look something up to know why it's remarkable in 10 years, because in 10 years it's normal. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> just, yeah, you know, you know, I would say it's pretty regular that I see a kid with like a cochlear implant on and like, I don't think I've ever seen a game with one. And you know, we, and then what's crazy is we had parents emailing us like, my daughter's four and she's just now learning that not everybody eats with a feeding tube connected to her stomach. Would you ever consider putting a feeding tube in your game? And we were like, yes, if you want that, we'll go do that. We'll put that on our roadmap. Uh, and then somebody else was like, you know, my kid's a type one diabetic and they have like a little device attached to their tummy at all times. Uh, and, you know, this is stuff that we could do. Honestly, this is stuff that's affordable to, to even do. It's not even that big of a deal. So yeah, like the answer is yes, yes, yes. Like we we want to do that and we want to make sure that kids feel represented. And, you know, there's going to be some kids that are like, look, I'm in a wheelchair every day, all day long. I play games to, to feel what it's like not to be in one. Uh, but there are, the overwhelming majority of the feedback we got is nobody's ever represented. What we like, we, we get people who are like in their early 20s saying if that type of thing existed when I was a kid, I really, really, really would have felt kind of, my existence would have felt more validated. And, you know, that's like the inspiration that keeps it, you know, you know how this stuff goes. You've interviewed enough people and you're, you know, you work within the games industry with this stuff. It, there are some days that are not easy. And that's the type of feedback that just like, 
when we share that internally, we, it's, it reminds us like why we have to keep going and why, why what we're doing is important. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I think um, that's such a good example of a, an, a you know, a, an able person's assumption that, you know, every person in a wheelchair dreams of not being in a wheelchair. And, and, and like you say, and, you know, like everybody wants to be Mario and fly, right? Like that's, that's not specific to people in wheelchairs, <laughs> but people in wheelchairs very often consider that part of who they are and the idea that they would want to escape it uh, is, is actually kind of insulting. Um, there was, there was a really interesting, uh, just to refer people to one other episode when I talked to Nick Garen, uh, who made Spiritfarer, there was one character in there who, you know, this we're taking, <laughs> this is, is this a spoiler? Spiritfarer takes place in the afterlife. There was a character who had been a wheelchair user in life and they basically adjusted the way they handled it in game, uh, based on feedback. Right. So, mm-hmm. so like so much of it is just listening. And I think, you know, I get the sense that you're really doing that, right? Because it's like you, you you're you not going to enter having all the answers. And oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, even with the character creator, like we decided not to have genders. So you can't pick a boy or a girl. You just pick a character and you can we have 40 sliders or whatever it is. And you can just slide the eyes and the ears and everything until you, you get what you're what you're interested in keeping. And that's because, like, I'm not like. You know, our game is really meant for like K through 12. I'm like an out of shape 44 year old white guy. What do I know about everybody else who's not me? So I think that kind of play is so important too, really quick. Cause like, I mean, I, I think so much about, you know, how my relationship to my own gender or whatever would have been different just simply if I'd known there were other options as a kid, right? Yeah. Like, would I have chosen differently? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe like there's just, there's no way to know. And I think, I think kids, kids these days, we should acknowledge we sound very old when we say stuff, like this, but that's okay. <laughs> um, they're like, you know, I I think they're just a little bit freer with that stuff. And so the idea to just like play around, make it look like you, whatever you think you look like or whatever you want to look like is like such a powerful thing to let kids do. Yeah. I, and that's the whole point, right? Like we're not telling them you can't wear a dress cause you're a boy, right? We're just saying like all this stuff is in the game. You can make your skin color, whichever one like we took, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of research and we found like 15 shades of skin pigment and we're like, all right, let's start with these 15. And if somebody says they don't feel represented, we'll put the other, It'll take a day. We'll put the other one in there. It's not, it's totally. not that big of a deal. Yeah, and yeah. just, you know, it's not only solely about making people who, who are in these situations feel included. It's about raising awareness to people that are not in these situations too. That, you know, like my, my kid's a perfect example. Back when he was like seven, he created a character in the game. And like, if I had to put a label on it, it looked to me like, kind of like an Asian girl with a prosthetic arm with a hook at the end of it. And I asked him, why'd you do that? And he was like, cause it looked cool. And that mm. was like the big dad win because you know, the idea would be hopefully one day my kid doesn't have a hook for a hand, but if he meets somebody that does, he will not be shocked by it. It'll just be completely normal because it is completely normal. People have it. It's not a big deal. Totally. Well, and also just the idea that like a femme presenting, possibly somewhat Asian looking person, like that's his idea of cool. It, 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 you know, one data point, obviously, but I think it gels with a lot of other stories I hear from parents where it totally gives the lie <laughs> to the the sort of mainstream media idea that, you know, we have to make everyone a, you know, a, a white boy because that's the default or whatever. And that's what people like, like, that isn't what people want. That certainly isn't what kids want. That's what we're telling them they want. You let kids, right, right. you just let kids play around and they're, they tend to be a lot more chill about this stuff. Yeah. And the more possibilities, and the more kinds of people you you expose them to the more possibilities and kinds of people they're chill with yeah and that and the thing is we don't scream like diversity and inclusion from the rafters right it's not like a political argument to take a side of or anything like that for us for us this stuff's just all in there and it's all optional but like 
it's sitting next to things like shirts and eyeglasses and right and a wheelchair. It doesn't make a difference. If you see something that you think is cool, that like, you know, we we always debate on the team, like, how cool should we make this wheelchair? Because all of us as developers, we all use it because right now it's faster than the player and it has a double jump. <laughs> and we're like, man, I'm like, unless we nerf this thing, I'm never not using this thing. That's interesting. Well, and it's you know, the, given the setting of the game, you could you could always have like you know rocket shoes or whatever. Like there's, yeah, there's ways we, to yeah, like yeah, right. Yeah. That's the cool part. Like the idea is mechanical. You know, Doctor Gearbox could pretty much make anything. Yeah, yeah. I guess I will slightly push back on the idea that it's possible not to be political with this kind of thing, right? Because like you're, I think the politics of it are extremely good and I think easy to defend. But it is maybe like there is no neutral position on whether people should be included, right? Like they, they either are or they aren't at the end of the day. And it's, yeah. it's more just like the people who are going to be mad can, can, you know, fix their hearts or go away. Like it's just that, you know, that's sort of all there is to it. Yeah. What I meant was we're not dragging the kids into the politics. Totally. Totally. You're not politicizing, like, look at the innocent children, you know, therefore yeah. my political point of view is correct. It's more just like right. demonstrably it's a good thing because, yeah. because there are different. Yeah, saying, yeah. Like this is what diversity and inclusion is. And this is why it's important. Instead, it's just in there. Right, it's inherently in the environment, and they'll kind of like it's to, in the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll start to just absorb this stuff, and that's what's you know, you know, like to get serious for a second. You know, one of the similarities or, or the things that I try to say is, it's kind of hard if you find an adult who's a racist to, to make them stop being racist overnight. But you can potentially prevent the next racist by just showing them what's out there. Because depending on where you are, there's a lot of things in the world that you'll never even see unless like you go away to college and then suddenly you get there and people are not like you because, you, you know, I mean, even like my parents, a perfect example, both of them were Italian. Both of them grew up in Brooklyn. Every single person on that block was Italian, period. So it was like you, you didn't know what else was out there until a certain age. Uh, and, you know, th- what we want to do here is just expose kids to everything and just make them understand that, like, everything's cool. It's totally cool to be whatever you want. That's totally cool. Totally, totally. No, and I think you're totally right that so much of it is exposing kids at a young age to different kinds of people. I mean, you know, nearly 100% of the adults who are afraid of immigrants don't know any, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> And there's, you know, that's not coincidental. So yeah, totally. Like taking someone's ideas that are hardened and changing them, it's possible. It requires planting a seed. It takes a long right. time. Art is something that can be really good at it. But it's a lot harder than like, like kids are malleable and kids are open to new information. And, you know, it actually takes a lot of work to make them bigoted, to harden a bigotry yeah, in a child. No, right, it's right. a ton you've of gotta, work. Yeah, you've got to like, you put effort into that. So, and you know what? Like another way of thinking about it, and there are people putting effort into that type of thing. So we're going to be the people that are putting effort into the opposite of that. Totally, totally. Yeah, that's well put. That's well put. The world needs some good, man. Like there's a, there's been a lot of stuff and a lot of reasons to argue and fight. And I don't want to like take this thing completely sideways, but we wanted to make some like a source of goodness in the world with this game. And that that you yeah. know a thing where everybody can get together and just have some fun and learn in the process and help charity like this thing that's really the focus of this whole thing is to it's to insert positivity back into the world. That's cool. Yeah, no, I mean, as, as a matter of policy on this here podcast, you can get as political or, you know, capital P political, I mean, right? Everything is political in the sense of people relating to each other, right? But you can get as ca- as capital P political as you want to or as little as you don't want to. I, I, I think, you know, the goal is not to get an incendiary soundbite, but neither do we want to kind of leave politics at the door because that's I a gotcha. pretty good way to, you know, to make sure that only the shittiest politics rise to the top, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the world... It's, it's a complicated adult world. Like if, if on that vibe, it's like, you know, I felt, and maybe this was just my interpretation of things, but like, you know, to get like raw for a second, you know, six months ago or whatever it was, 
I felt like people were basically telling me like, you either need to be, choose black people or cops. And I was like, what? That doesn't sound like something. That's like, you can't even compare those things or choose between them. What are you talking about? And now this, the, growing up in Staten Island, I'm sure you've got like, for sure feelings about this, right? Because yeah, for anybody, so for anybody international up, listeners who don't know, like a, a lot of cops in New York live on Staten Island. It's just a, it's, it's just a, a feature yeah. of the neighborhood, right? And there's been a lot of, lot of like, you could just Google it. There's been a lot of horrible atrocities, you know, and a lot of great cops and all sorts of, and that's the thing, right? Like cops are just people like everybody else. And, uh, and I grew up, I went to a very, very, like very mixed high school. And in, I grew up during like the Rodney King rides when they were going on in California. And that was like, you know, that spread into my high school instantaneously. So there was like all sorts of like crazy racial stuff going on. When I was, I was living in, I grew up in LA. So I remember the, you know, I remember the yeah, LA, of course. LA rebellion and some right. sociologists call it now or whatever, like real well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, those, those were insane times and it, it, a lot of awareness and, you know, it, it did like in the high school I went to, it became like, we, you know, I called them the Guidos. It was like the hardcore Italian. I don't consider myself like, you know, they dressed a certain way and acted a certain way. And like the black kids and the Guidos would, would fight. And I never got into a fight because everybody was just cool with me because I, I, I was like this to everybody always, thank God. Uh, and I didn't like pick a I, side. I too was usually too strange to fight with. So yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have been good in those fights anyway. People were probably just like, we don't want you on our team, Mike. Sure, sure. Picked picked last for the rumble. I, I, yeah. I, um, but no, I, I hear I hear what you're saying, which is that um, I mean, so like part of what you're gesturing at, you know, let's you know we don't we don't have to linger here too long, but I think it's important to just you know like like say where we stand, right? When you talk about the thing of like you know it's it's cops or it's black people, that's like the Twitterization of the argument, right? Like right. it's this it's this idea of, of reducing it to a hashtag. When you know like like actual people who will chant all cops are bastards in the street are actually expressing a relatively nuanced political idea that is not captured at all by those four words. What they're saying is, right, like if you're not a cop who has ever harmed anyone or murdered anyone, but you are a cop who would cover for your ser- your senior officer who did those things, which is most cops, right. then you're then you're complicit, right? Yeah, I mean, like that's what people are saying, but that doesn't fit doesn't fit in a tweet. Yeah, is that the the blue wall of silence they call yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, there I mean I guess the way I would put it is there cannot be both good cops and the blue wall of silence. They can't coexist. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine, you know, there's probably some other pressures in there of what what happens to you if you do speak up. So maybe no, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Frank Serpico is what happens, right? I mean, like they <laughs> at, at least your career is over. They made you someone may try to murder you. I mean, like this is a real right. thing, right? Right, like, right. So like yeah, it's yeah. very there's very complicated factors going on here. And it's not to excuse anything, of course. Uh, but, you know, like I think it goes back to what we talked about before. That's the complicated world that we live in. And we want to try to dial this back and say, well, how do we prevent this from, you know, having longevity? And totally, totally, totally. One way is to just get to kids early and show them like, dude, you can grow up. And, you know, it's funny because we had this debate. We were making armor sets. The idea of the game is you you select a battle trivia pack. An example is like the, the space set. And if you use those space questions, you you will start getting like, like a space suit armor set to drop. Hmm. And when we were putting together the armor sets, like my head is where it was when I was a kid. And it was like, all right, what did every single kid say they want to be with be when they grow up? Those are the sets we should make. And it was like, I want to be a baseball player. I, I, when I, where I grew up on Staten Island, you were either a baseball player, a fireman, or a cop. Those were one of the three things that you were going to say. Yeah, there's there's a joke among amongst Jewish families such as my own that uh, your three career options are doctor, lawyer, and disappointment. <laughs> 
that's probably a joke that exists in lots of cultures, actually, South Asian and what have you. Well, my whole family's full of disappointment. Let me promise you that. <laughs> Yours, <laughs> mine, and everybody's, man. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, when we were putting together the armor sets, we ended up going with a first responder instead of a straight up police officer. So we we did it. We did the fireman, and then like we didn't know how it was going to be received, and we were too small to go over poorly with anybody. So we were like, let's just do first responder, and this is actually before COVID. And then COVID happened and first responders got put on the map even more so, you know, because of the effort they were putting in. So uh, that's what we went with. But like, even to this day, I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't think it's the wrong thing to do to put a cop in there because there are good cops out there. And, you know, there are kids who have parents that are cops and they, you want them to know that their parents are good people too. That's, yeah, yeah. It's a difficult thing. And it's, it's and, touching. you know, to, it's really to your touching. point, and we're, we're super, probably, yeah. And it's touchier now than when you started, right? Like you probably modeled the cop outfit before the George Floyd protest, Yeah, totally. Straight up, straight up. We drew it up. Yeah. And then when it came time to, you know, again, like, you know, I, I, I sprung for this thing out of my pocket. So it was like, that was, you know, it ties into my history in finance. Like I made a little bit of money there and I was like, what am I going to do with this thing? And the idea was like, let's like do something good for the universe. It's like, instead of like buying a BMW or something, Let's try to fix some of the problems that are out there. And that's, that's what we did with this. Uh, and that was like, look, I don't, I can't spend that money everywhere. Where are we, we going to spend it? And it was like, let's just spend it on stuff that we know will resonate with kids. And, and that was one of the things I'm like, I don't, I don't want this to get, thing to get into some kind of political argument where we launch the game and the world hates it because it's a cop outfit in there or something. Yeah, that's that's so hard, right? Because that that is a perfect example of something where there is there is no answer that will not piss someone off. Yeah, right? Right. having and, it and, and removing it'll piss someone off. Yeah, having it and in not the, putting, yeah, yeah. somebody's going to hear this podcast and be like, "Oh man, that guy blew it." He, like he he should have stood up for himself and put that in there. He, he, and it's you know, you, like you said, you got to just t- go with your gut on stuff on stuff like that. Yeah. Well, okay. let's, this is maybe a good time to pivot to, to how you got to where you are, right? Cause you've, you, you've alluded a few times to your history in finance and I, if this is overstating the case, please tell me, but I get the sense that you can, you kind of consider your move away from financial tech to be like a face turn, right? That you were doing stuff that you felt like wasn't necessarily harming the world, but wasn't helping either. And you wanted to do something to help. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I worked in banking for 15 years and my, what triggered me leaving was I heard a guy say that his $300,000 bonus wasn't going to pay for his country club that year. And I don't know if he was serious or not, but I heard it. And he struck me as the type of guy that wasn't joking around because of the way he was saying it. Uh, and, and kind of like what I've gathered from the guy over the years. And that was it for me. I was just like, Man. your soul just left your body in that moment. And you had to, yeah, sure. I mean, I'd been there for a long time. I remember having an argument with my boss one time, we were talking about Zuckerberg and I had said uh, nobody should be allowed to have more than a billion dollars. And I'm like, once you hit a billion, that should just go to like fixing the roads or something. And what I really wanted to say was like 20 million. Right. But I knew that wasn't <laughs> going to go over well on a trading floor full of traders who are making $20 million a year. Sure. So I said a billion and he was like, that is completely un-American. And I'm like, dude, like, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? It's such like, a historical position, too, that that's un-American, right? Because, I mean, in, yeah. in the period that the, that the I mean, you know, I, I just got to say it, right? In the period that the Make America Great Again crowd fetishizes, what the, the highest marginal tax rate under Eisenhower was, I believe, 92 or 93%, right? The idea of, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean they took 93% of your money. It meant once you'd made a certain amount, if you didn't reinvest it in your company, if you just stashed it, then it got taxed at 93%. Right. So people reinvested it, right? That's as American as apple pie. Right, right. 
but you're saying, yeah. yeah so, so like you, you've talked a bit about how like the whole structure of the modern corporation is, is sort of about that, right? Just like acquisitiveness well beyond what a person could reasonably spend in a lifetime, almost just for its own sake. Yeah. And it's not, it's not okay if we're the same, we're the same people who are going into Penn station and, and stepping over homeless people to get to those jobs. And it's like in real nice suits. Yeah. That's where it, that's where like I was seeing those two things every day and it was pretty much like, so what I do is I left banking and went to financial technology and there I learned how to build. I didn't build it myself, but I was a part of the software build process. And I did that for six years. And there we were going to a meeting one day and I walked past what I assume is like a mother and her like five-year-old kid. And they were sitting on the curb you know, and they were what I would assume homeless. And -hmm. I had a kid that age. And that's when I was just like, I got to do more. I don't know why we're walking past these people. And I went back there later to like, just give them 20 bucks or whatever. And they weren't there. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I I had an opportunity to do something here. and I didn't do it. So all of these things were kind of swirling in my head. And, you know, when I got, had the opportunity to go create a startup and create a game, I, I took it and it's, you know, I leaped into it and now I'm just like, oh man, I really need a paycheck and this game's not making any money right now. We're, we're still in the demo phase. So, you know, there's there's other considerations that I need to figure out as well. Uh, but like, I don't take any of it back and I think we'll be okay as well. So that's kind of where we're at today. Like get the demo out there. The prayer here is that people dig the demo to the point where we can flip it to a subscription as is and start charging for it. But what the demo is really about is we're okay with people showing up and saying, look, I, am, I would never pay for this. And this is why we need to get that information because we can't make this in a box where we assume we've made something really, really cool and people should be paying for it. No, so totally. It'd be great to have someone say I'm in as is, but, but to say, yeah, like the here's why is invaluable or here's why not. And as yeah, the case right. Well, here's why not. It's yeah. also very, very valuable. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's like, I, I totally see how the, the, the you know, nobody should have more than a billion dollars, you know, parenthesis, 20 million relates to what you're doing, right? Because the idea of like putting STEM education, you know, right. into a, a consummate piece of, of art. Uh, I, I was an art history major as an undergrad. So oh, I have, cool. I will, <laughs> I have fought the fight of, of what art <laughs> is and what games are and whatever more times than I had hot meals for four years and many times since. So, you right. know, I, I, I have no problem calling games art, right? But like, uh, and I think, I think the world in general is over it, but I still joke about it because it was a very funny argument. Point being, you combine STEM education with a really, a really interesting piece of art that, like you said, addresses real topics. That is more or less how you avoid getting more Zuckerbergs, by which I mean people who learn, you know, how to, how to code websites and do business and who assume that, well, history and media literacy are simpler than business and software. So I must also be an expert at those things, right? Right. right. The lacking the sort of the, you know, the literal humanities, but also the human element, putting people's play and their learning and their socialization, you know, like making those things a little bit less separate and hived off strikes me as a really good idea. Yeah, I think it could be fun, right? Because the quest right now is like, you know, hey, Drew, go to the forest, murder the wolves and bring me back the wolf pelts. And then I'm going to send you the next guy and you're going to do something similar. And we call them the FedEx quests, right? You're just going to keep going and delivering things and doing that. And what we were like is we should have a campaign that stems over the 40 levels. And instead of it being like that, it'll be more like, dude, we need you to go down to the water and take a water sample and then bring it back here, put it under the microscope. These are the things we're looking for. And the, the idea behind that would be if you could do it in the game, you could do it in the real life. And it would be, again, it would be like a study tool, even if it's 
make a ham sandwich. Like you'd be learning by doing in the game. And then you can go and if you have that equipment in real life, you can go do it there too. So sadly, none of that's built yet. That like, that is a major investment. That's why we were like shopping for investors and pitch decks and all that kind of stuff, because you really need more of a team to put that kind of stuff together. We have started to build the STEM committee, the teachers that have the actual lessons and we are, are stem.org uh, accredited. So we have the right academic professionals in place. We have our writer, who's this guy, uh, Gianmarco Giacomelli is his name. He's an awesome writer. So like the story and the world and the shape, everything's together. We have really good 3D guys. We just don't have the cash to get everybody in and, and, and working on it yet. Mm-hmm. So as soon as, and that's a, that's a hope too. If we can flip this to a subscription and we can start making that money, then we can kind of release the campaign episodically. At the risk of opening up a whole other can of worms, that's that's something else that I think about a lot. Uh, a good friend of mine, Aaron Perry Zucker, who's done a lot of, uh, he worked on the, with the Creative Action Network for a lot of years. He made the logo for the show. Uh, he talks a lot about how the model that everything good has to be done by nonprofits has not necessarily gone super well, <laughs> right? And if we can't do good things, like if, if what our system is set up for, that the things that are worthwhile are the things that have a, an incoming revenue stream, then having things with an ongoing revenue stream that do good things seems actually pretty important, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, because when you look at like, you know, and that's what investors kind of looked at us sideways because when I would say things like, we, you know, there look, there are games out there right now that are making $400 million a month. And I'm not, I'm not going to name them, but we, we both know they exist, right? My curiosity is, what we're on earth, you don't need that much money to even run the biggest of game studios. So what is ha- like to me, I think there's just money sitting in accounts and people with big numbers in checkbooks. And that's kind of where it ends. Like, yeah, I, I got this much money or I have this much in stock options. And when I would talk to investors, I would say things like, look, the bottom line is if we're making that kind of money or even something that's great, we don't or shouldn't be keeping all of it. I, as a CEO, shouldn't be making $20 million one day, right? Like I'm going to cap my salary at something that's reasonable and anything over that, you know, if the studio is taken care of, if all the people are here are taken care of, if the investors or whoever it's going to be are making, you know, a, a, a good return that they really can't get elsewhere, the rest of that money should be fixing what's broke or helping kids, especially kids that are in need there. You know, I feel like I got a really fair shake. You know, I was a middle-class kid growing up on Staten Island. There were a lot of opportunities were there for me. There's a lot of people that don't have that and didn't have that and will never have that. So I, f- I just feel like if we're making that kind of money, we should be finding the people that need it and deploy that money in a better way than just, you know, opening up another brick and mortar studio somewhere or doing that kind of stuff. For sure. For sure. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, like, I, I, it's really important what you're saying. Like, it's the line from Chinatown, right? Like, how many lunches can you eat? Right. right? Like right. A, there's a certain point where you just simply don't need more money. It is just pure avarice. And it's a core aspect of dysfunction in, I mean, like nonprofits have their own additional problems where if you're not paying people, then the people who are showing up are the people who don't need to be paid. And that's going to be a certain kind of self-reinforcing group of people. But just in general, this idea that, you know, the money all floats to the top is, it, it's just totally antithetical, right? It doesn't, like, it's not, you know, and I understand those people are making a lot of decisions and there's a lot of stress there and they, they earn, you know, more potentially, you can make an argument that they, they earn more than everybody else that works there or something. But I don't know, like, I'm just, I have a different mindset, you know, like, could I afford a better car? Yeah. But I drive my 99 Jeep Wrangler that I bought in 1999 and I will drive it until it does not move anymore. 
And it just it kind of gets you where you're like, going. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, what I, I hear you, man. I don't need five cars. <laughs> totally, man. There's a difference, I think, between the argument that the person who is the leader should make more than everyone else. Like, even if even if we made the argument that that person should make double what everyone else makes, that is orders of magnitude less money than, in yeah. fact, C, you know, C-suites make. Yeah, they shouldn't make as much as everybody else combined makes. Right, <laughs> right, right. And I don't know why we've you know, we've found ourselves in a situation where that's okay. And like having these types of conversations is a surefire way to make it hard for us moving forward. Cause people hear this and they're like, all right, man, well, I have some money and I'm not throwing it your way. Cause you're trying to make it. So I don't have money anymore. And my rebuttal <laughs> is like, totally well, how many like lunches can you eat, dude? Right? Yeah, like, yeah. 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 Like exactly. I mean, like, like, cause again, that person, the person who's having that reaction, like, like really like, I don't know. I, if you, if you're listening, billionaire donor class and investment <laughs> class and angel investor class, really though, <laughs> like like if yeah. if you had a tenth the money you have, like like if you know if someone who's genuinely like living paycheck to paycheck had a tenth the money they had, then that'd be disastrous. It'd be calamitous. It'd be it'd be an urgent problem, and they probably, as a practical matter, wouldn't bounce back from it. If if Bezos had one tenth the money he had. How much would it affect his life? He maybe couldn't go on very expensive sitcom-length sojourns to space. But otherwise... I don't know if he couldn't. I don't know if he could. Actually, come to think of it, he still totally could. So yeah, that what what in fact are we arguing about, right? Like, is it just a pure pathology of, of, of acquisitiveness? Like, at a certain point, money can solve problems. So we should probably put it towards solving yeah. the rather yeah. urgent problems that we have in abundance. Yeah, man. You know what, what a really telltale sign of all this was is where our Kickstarter money came from. Because huh. I didn't really know what I was doing. We hired a company to do the Kickstarter and we learned like we were chasing them for months. Like, hey, we were supposed to have this done. This was supposed to be a milestone. You had this in the roadmap. And we learned like on the, the Friday before the Tuesday that we were going to launch, they had done nothing. And they were like, yeah, we were just going to postpone it. And I'm like, no, dude. Like we agreed in May that we were going to do it in, in July. That so, is a like, wild thing to say. That yeah, is crazy. And, and another thing is what I have learned as part of this industry, lots of people want to take money up front. So basically they took a bunch of money and they didn't do a single thing. And I remember our lawyer drafted a letter and we sent them, basically we sent them a letter on the Saturday saying that like you're fired. And they finally replied to that email. They weren't replying to anything. And their reply was like, all right, man, we'll throw some stuff in the shared drive and, we'll, and let us know how it looks on Monday. And we what? were like, you just got fired, man. Like, aren't you listening? Uh, so we had to do the Kickstarter ourselves, and they were supposed to basically go source people that would be interested. And they had a track record supposedly of getting that done and all this type of stuff. So when we were doing it ourselves, like, yeah, we had a great first couple of days because like my mom was throwing in money and like, like the people that we knew really well. And then it just stalled out on like day three and we were nowhere and the Kickstarter is all or none. So we were like, mm -hmm. no way, no how going to get to where we had to get. So I was like, the only thing I could do is reach out to every single person I ever met in my entire life and ask them for five bucks. And mm. I went on my Facebook and my LinkedIn and my Instagram. And if I knew you, I would have went to you. And it was like anybody that I ever knew. I was like, look, this is what I'm doing. It's for a good cause. If you could throw it in. And where the money ended up coming from is like shocking compared to where you would assume it came from, considering I had 15 years in banking. And it was like, yeah, some of the, I mean, look, dude, some of those people are what I would consider super rich, just like millions and millions of like some, some of them hundreds of millions of dollars in their bank account. And most of, 
some people threw me money. I'm not going to say that they didn't. And props to everybody in the banking side who did that. I love you. But like the, the heavy, 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 heavy majority came from people that like had regular everyday low paying jobs and they were throwing in way more than I ever, ever would have wanted them to mm, mm. It, as in comparison. And if you, if like, you take that as an, as an expression of their, you know, their, their paycheck or whatever, they were giving vastly more. Way more. I mean, we're talking like hundreds of dollars from people that were like sanitation workers and stuff. Not not not, not to say that like there's not anything wrong with being a sanitation. No, worker. no, they just make but, a lot less than banking. Yeah, but you're not making yeah. right. You're not making what like an equity trader is. Uh, and like you know, those people were throwing in like sometimes less or around the same amount of money. And look, I'm like very 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 thankful for everybody that threw in. It's not a. It's not about that. It's just kind of a. It's kind of a shocker, you know, that like just especially because in some cases. The work I did made some of those people that money. And I'm like, really, dude? You throw me 20 bucks? <laughs> but, you know, again, like, we couldn't be more thankful. We got the Kickstarter done. It was 50 grand. We had a lot of family come through. And I feel like anytime anybody tells me they're going to do a Kickstarter, I'm like, let's put a half hour on the calendar so I can talk to you about mine before you do yours. Because mm. I, I just want to share all the mishaps, man, so people don't fall, you know, fall for the same tricks we did. There are a lot of self-styled experts, and 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 to be clear, they are not all selling snake oil. But I feel like, as with most things, it's it's hard to be just like talking to someone you trust who's gone through it. Yeah, you you know, I I always tell my team this too. Like, whenever you can, tell everybody everything that you did wrong in life. Like that's like to me, that's like the best currency there is. Sure. I can tell you all my mistakes, and if you don't fall into one of those, then what a great day, man, for you at least. <laughs> if anything, I mean, yeah. like. If you could learn from my mistakes, like then, then it was more worth me doing it. Mm, that's a good way to think of it. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's it's like yeah, because you you want people, and you know there are always there. Were, it's both a, it's both a personality thing and just a fact of life that some people have to have to make a mistake for themselves before they understand that it's yeah, a mistake. Right, right. But if you can if you can have people avoid some of the pitfalls you avoided, if then we're not starting from zero every time, right? I think that's when people get sad about humanity. It's because it feels like we're just a, we don't get smarter <laughs> as yeah. a people. And you know that's that is true in some senses, but it's not true across the board. There is there is like a sense in which we can get better and be better. And part of that is being honest about where we screwed up and yeah. yeah, giving people a chance to at least go make new and interesting mistakes. Yeah. I mean, that's the point, right? That's what mistakes are. It's like, if you're not making any mistakes whatsoever, then you're probably not really challenging yourself. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's... okay. You know, every day we break our engine. Right? <laughs> it's like every day we, you know, we it touch something you, over by the here. Way. That is, that is a common experience. Yeah. Right. You touch something over here, something over there breaks. That's like, you know, that's like any day of the week for us. Yeah. Well, well, I am, I'm glad to hear that things are moving on a pace regardless. And thank you one more time. Um, oh, actually one more super quick thing. Is there some music from the current build of the game that I could use in intros and outros? Or is it kind of too early days? You can, you can, we, I have the files. Just let me know which ones you want. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, just send whichever ones you think you I'll represent. I'll send you the or... soundtrack and you can, you know, take it upon yourself. That's our, perfect. Our guy, That's perfect. Plug to Bill Bressler, the coolest composer on the planet. That guy uh, really knocked it out of the park with our soundtrack. And I'm sure, uh, you know, he's got a really cool gig. I think he works, he does a sound for Major League Baseball, Bill. But, uh, oh shit. That's a yeah, great thing. And, and other stuff. He happened, his kid was on my kid's soccer team and we, we were sitting next to each other. And when I was telling him what I was doing, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I make a little bit of music myself. And I was like, I may have to make the soundtrack to my game. And he's like, oh, you need music? I could do that. 
And I went to his house and he had like the sickest setup ever. So <laughs> that it, gap between somebody who's like, oh yeah, I dabble. And like somebody who's like become an audio engineer is yeah. so funny to me. Like, yeah. So if anybody needs me, um, you know, a composer of music for a video game or anything, uh, get in touch with me. I'll hook you up with Bill. The guy is awesome. That's a solid plug. That's a solid plug. And I'll, I'll see if, you know, whatever web presence he has, I will obviously link to. All right, cool, man. Listen, this was an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad we did this. Likewise. I'm really glad too. Thank you. Uh, thank you one more time and have a good night. All right, you too, man. All right, later. Bye-bye. And that's the show. You can download the demo for the mechanical world of Dr. Gearbox and wishlist the main game on Steam. You can also follow Mike and Flamehawk Studios on Twitter. Links in the show notes. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with all manner of support from two people for whom I made judicious use of the GameCube's handle, Francis Michelle Cannon and Lucio Valentino. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker using icons from The Noun Project. Our theme song, the current version thereof anyway, is by me. You can find more music I make at carpedemon.band. And you can find this here show everywhere podcasts are a thing, including but not limited to wherever you are listening to it right now. If you find that not to be true, if the show is not somewhere where you like to listen to podcasts, let me know. I would like to change that. You can find me on Twitter at Drew M. Michaels or the show on Twitter at ETAOPod. If you'd like to support the show and can do so without financial hardship, then hey, we'd love that. Here's how you could do that, should you want to and be able to. You could buy something on our Nexus page at nexus.gg etao, or you could patronize us at patreon.com etao. Thanks tremendously to our current patrons, with a special thanks to Carlos de los Santos and Darth Raptora, and an even specialer thanks to the mysterious Ian Kay and Lucas Cosin. You can also support us on Ko-fi. A very happy extended spooky season to those who observe, and I would like to offer, not exclusively, but especially to such folks, a little treat for your ears. Uh, I do another podcast called Dice Punks. It's one of them actual play podcasts you may or may not have heard so much about. We play tabletop games, though we focus on lesser known systems, and we did a rather lovely, if I may say so, Halloween special in an indie system called Tricks, Treats, and Spooky Streets. You can find it everywhere podcasts are most pointedly not sold, or at DicePunks.com. If you've been thinking, hey, I might want to check out that Dice Punk show, but you do full campaigns usually, and that's a lot to get into, this is maybe a cool opportunity to jump in, because it's a one-shot, it's spooky, it's cool, we like it, it's fun, more in the spooky lane than the actual horror lane. Give it a go if that sounds like your thing. Do take care in the meantime, and I hope to see you next time on this show. Take care till then, everybody.